Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners. Dr. Cassie here with a super informative episode sponsored by DECRA and featuring Dr. Daniel Langlois here to discuss Cushing's disease. Cushing's has always, to me, felt like this kind of ambiguous, hard-to-nail-down disease, and I feel like that perception has been echoed by many of the specialists that I've spoken to. You know, there's no perfect test, there's no perfect treatment plan, everything is incredibly patient dependent, and every case can be really different. Fortunately, Dr. Langlois seemed to embrace the ambiguity of Cushing's disease, and I feel like by doing that, he offered some really great practical advice that just kind of made me feel like it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay if I don't pick the right test on the first try, or if I don't get slam dunk results, or the perfect dose of trilostane on the first go. He made me feel like my patients would be okay, and just gave some really great tips for client communication. I hope you feel just as comforted in your approach to Cushing's disease as I did after listening to this episode, and as an added bonus, be sure to head over to vetfolio.com to take the quiz related to this podcast and earn your CE credits. Dr. Langlois is an associate professor at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. He's originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and received his DVM from Louisiana State University in 2009. He then completed a one-year internship at The Ohio State University, which was followed by an internal medicine residency at Michigan State University. He obtained board certification from the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2013, and he's been an MSU faculty member since that time. Right. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Langlois, and we're going to talk about Cushing's disease, which is good because in addition to kind of what we know we're going to talk about, I have so many questions. I need to figure these guys out. So thank you for joining me and letting me pick your brain. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's, you know, I, I like to dabble in a lot of endocrine topics and certainly Cushing's is one of them. And despite the, you know, the textbook examples always being quite simplistic, I think on the clinical floor, it's always quite challenging to deal with some of these dogs. It is. And I feel like I, I do get that message talking to internists of like, Cushing's is often not straightforward. It always makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the diagnosis of Cushing's disease, we're talking about the integration of clinical signs and laboratory findings. And sometimes like we're, we're kind of mentioning here, those don't always point us in like a crystal clear direction. So what are some of the indicators we should be aware of that might suggest a patient has Cushing's disease? Yeah, and I, th- I think kind of what you're saying is, is important. It really is the integration of the, the physical features, the history, the initial, you know, CBC, CAM, UA assessment. And, and part of that is because our tests for Cushing's aren't, you know, they're not perfect. It's not a PCR test where disease is present, disease is not. And, and so, you know, the more features that are present, the more likely we feel confident in interpreting some of those positive test results. So from, you know, a clinical standpoint, we always say, you know, the five big P's, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, panting pot-bellied appearance, and then there's a variety of other dermatologic abnormalities. But I, I think that it's one piece. The other piece is integrating those laboratory features. And so the CBC, there's often a stress leukogram, usually a thrombocytosis. You know, everybody thinks of the alkaline phosphatase increase, which is present in about 90% of, of dogs with Cushing's, but certainly cholesterol increases are common as well. And so I, I think the more of these abnormalities that you have together, the stronger your index of suspicion is going to be. And, you know, the flip side of that is if you have a dog that 
is panting, but there's no other clinical signs, there's no laboratory abnormality suggestive of Cushing's, probably not going down the route of Cushing's would be, you know, my advice. So I think it really is sort of balancing, you know, the weight of evidence for and against the disease. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm glad you bring up the alkaline FOS. I know I've had at least one patient where ALP was totally normal, but we were symptomatic for Cushing's. So can you go over the laboratory findings in a little bit more detail as far as what other indications we might see that would push us towards a suspicion of Cushing's? Yeah, and so I think we often do rely on the ALKFOS as you know, the big indicator because it is present in so many dogs. But you know, as I said, it's 90%. And if you do this long enough, you're clearly going to see that 10% of the, the population that does not have the increase in ALKFOS. And so those are the dogs where you know a hypercholesterolemia might be present, which is, you know, again, about two-thirds of dogs. Usually they're going to have a stress leukogram, or at least a, a leukogram that's trending towards what I would call stress-ish. Maybe the, the lymphocyte count isn't truly low, but it's at the very bottom of the reference interval. The neutrophils are at the high end. And so again, looking in that direction. And the thrombocytosis, I think, is often an overlooked feature of Cushing's disease. It's present in the in, in the, the majority of these dogs as well. And so usually looking for those things. And so I've certainly, like you, I, I've diagnosed dogs that do not have the increase in, in ALK-FOS, but usually they have clinical signs of Cushing's and they have some of those other laboratory changes as well. I'm glad you brought up cholesterol. I always forget to look at cholesterol and how important that could be. Yeah, it is. And you know, a lot of the in-house chemistry analyzers don't always have the cholesterol on it too. So it's also, you know, easy not even to to think about it if it's not on your your routine chemistry as well. Yeah, absolutely. And another laboratory value I want to ask you about, keeping in mind this patient I had who didn't have the ALP elevation, we did see a thrombocytosis and I want to say it impacted the thyroid value as well. So how do you go about interpreting thyroid values in a in either a diagnosed or a suspected Cushnoid patient? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, usually we're always saying you should you know, assess for other diseases and rule them out first before you test for for Cushing's because the stress of all of these other illnesses might influence your adrenal function testing. But but thyroid testing is sort of the the exception to that rule. And that's because high cortisol levels will decrease the amount of circulating T4 and T3 concentrations. And so if you have a dog that comes in that maybe has some alopecia, maybe there's a high cholesterol and you think, oh, this could be Cushing's, this could be thyroid. Well, if it's Cushing's disease and you happen to go the route of thyroid testing first, you're likely to have an erroneous diagnosis of hypothyroidism. So that's sort of the one exception, where if you suspect both, probably look into Cushing's first and then circle back to thyroid disease after. Oh, gosh, that makes me like think about some of my hypothyroid patients. And I'm like, could they have been Cushnoid? And I just went the wrong way first. Yeah, it happens. And we see a few cases, you know, every year where that happens. I mean, the, you know, the, the good thing is that it's probably not going to cause a lot of harm to have a dog on thyroid supplementation if they don't need it. But of course, you hate to have an owner administering a drug, you know, twice a day if, if it's not a disease that needs to be treated. Sure. So, you know, talking about diagnostics, we talked about, you know, our basic CBC chemistry and some of the laboratory values we might see, thyroid. But then, you know, let's say we we look at our patient and clinical signs, CBC chem, they're all suggestive of Cushing's and we think, okay, let's do some diagnostics and see if we can diagnose this. It seems to me like there are three main tests out there that we're working with, the cortisol to creatinine ratio, ACTH stim, and low-dose DEX suppression test. So can you talk about those in a little bit more detail, the differences between the tests and how to most effectively get to our diagnosis without hopefully having to do all three? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I guess uh, I'll start with the urine cores autocreatinine probably because that's the, the easiest to address, I suppose. But it really is a screening test. And, and some of the original studies that, that were published on it suggested that it had a sensitivity close to 100%, not 100%, but, but close to it. And so a dog with Cushing's generally is going to have a high urine cortisol to creatinine ratio. However, lots of other diseases that cause PUPD, lots of other systemic metabolic processes can also cause an increase in the urine cortisol to creatinine ratio. So it really lacks specificity. So a high result means Cushing's remains a differential, but so do a lot of other disease processes. So we realistically don't run a lot of urine cortisol to creatinine ratios, especially if we have a really strong index of suspicion for Cushing's. We're going to go with one of the, the, the tests that offers a little bit more confirmatory value. So if you have a very normal or low urine cortisol to creatinine ratio, you probably feel pretty good about ruling out a differential for, for Cushing's disease or ruling out Cushing's disease. But again, with that higher result, we, we really don't know. And I think the other thing to consider is that the assays have changed a lot over the years. And there haven't been a lot of side-by-side -side comparisons, and there haven't been a lot of updated studies to look at the currently used assays. And so whether or not it performs the same now as it did several years ago, I, I really don't think we know. And so again, we're not big users of the urine cortisol to creatinine ratio. And so I think it's just important to consider, you know, some of these limitations if you're thinking about using it for screening purposes. And I guess the one last thing I'll mention about it is that if you are going to do it, you want to make sure you have the owners bring a urine sample from home. Because even right. the, the ride to the, the clinic, the stress of in-hospital collection might be enough to increase endogenous cortisol production that you may have a false positive if you're doing it on a, an in-hospital patient. I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up. That was going to be one of my questions is I've heard that we need to take this sample at home or we can get some false positives. So am I hearing you correctly that if we are, you know, Cushing's is on our radar, but we have a pretty low index of suspicion, then it might be reasonable to take a home urine sample and do a urine cortisol to creatinine ratio more. And we're going to have better luck ruling Cushing's out than ruling it in. Yeah, absolutely correct. And so that, that would be the case that, that we would use it in. And again, if we had the really high index of suspicion, it, it, often it's a, a waste of time and, and money because you're just going to come back and do either the ACTH stem or the low-dose dex afterwards. And so usually we're going to proceed with, with one of those two in those types of scenarios. I feel like I have such a clearer perspective of urine cortisol to creatinine <laughs> ratios because, you know, some of that stuff I already knew, but I, was, I wasn't incredibly clear on how that test fit into the whole scheme of things. So thank you for the clarification. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And then, you know, as for the other two tests, I think that's where there's a lot of debate. What's better, the ACTH stem, the low-dose DEX? Obviously, there's the, the pros and cons of each. The, the low-dose DEX is going to take eight hours. So in my academic setting, we're often not getting our patients into the back until, you know, 10 or 11 a.m. So doing a low-dose DEX is quite challenging because it means that we're there until, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night if we're doing a low-dose DEX. The ACTH stem, obviously, only an hour. Um, the, the stem's a little bit more expensive, not not drastically, but I, I think the the more important things to consider are the the sensitivity and specificity of those tests. And and most studies would suggest the low-dose DEX is going to be more sensitive, so you're going to have a positive result in more of your Cushing's cases, whereas the ACTH stem is likely more specific. So uh, again, it, it's not not that there's a right or wrong way to, to test, but I think you should be aware of those relative features of, of the two big tests that we use. There was a consensus statement published by a group of internists several years ago, and, and their 
general take was that the low-dose DEX is their preferred test. But, but if you look at the literature that's out there, the results of those two tests are in agreement in over 90% of cases. So I, I don't think it's so important that it's either the low-dose DEX or it's the ACTH stem. It's just being aware that the low-dose DEX is going to be a bit more sensitive. The ACTH stem is going to be a bit more specific. But again, if you're testing the appropriate patient population, so there's consistent clinical features, there's supporting laboratory evidence, one of those tests is usually going to provide you with the, the correct information. Absolutely. I know um, I've had my fair share of equivocal tests. So again, taking into account what these tests are going to do, like you said, one is more sensitive, one is more specific, taking that in combination with your clinical suspicion and clinical signs, that would kind of point you in the direction, of course, in combination with logistics of which test to choose. Yeah, I, I think so. But I mean, the other thing to consider is that if you have a dog that you really suspect Cushing's in and you did an ACTH stem and you have an equivocal result or maybe the post-ACTH stem is you know, borderline high, well, that would be the one where I would say, you know what, well, this isn't the most sensitive test. I'm going to retest this dog in a couple of months, but I'm going to probably do the low-dose DEX in this case. And so I, I ah, think that you okay. know, there's different ways you can look at it. Don't just throw things when I get equivocal results and go, gosh darn it. <laughs> you know, I, ideally not, but I mean, it, it all Fair. depends. I mean, you know, the one thing is that Cushing's usually isn't going to be immediately life-threatening. And so I, 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 sure. I feel like there's usually time to work through these cases. And, and usually the dogs that have sort of equivocal results or negative results when you still suspect it, usually they're not the ones with the most severe clinical features. Usually the ones with really, really severe clinical features, their test results are usually going to be consistent with that that clinical picture. And so, again, I, I think we, we've done both tests in, in different orders, depending on the case. But I think in most cases, you usually get the results you're expecting. If not, we sort of step back, reassess, consider retesting with the, the alternative test. Okay. I love that viewpoint and looking at it that way, because that's always the hard part is, is then going back to an owner and saying, you know, we're still not totally sure, which is a risk with any test that we do with Cushing's you know, whether or not we have this or not. But I think the way you phrased it there of, okay, you know, this is, it, it's not definitive right now. I'm still suspicious. So let's give this pet a couple of months and, you know, we'll come back and we'll retest and we'll see if anything has changed. But using the different test, I know that to me as a clinician, and I would imagine as a pet owner as well, would be much easier to swallow than, hey, thanks for coming in and doing this test. Now we're going to have to turn around and do another one right away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I think that many of the owners, if you if you paint that picture on the front end, they're, they're usually okay with it. But again, I think those are going to be the minority of cases. In most of cases, you're going to reach that yes, it is, or no, it's not more definitively You know, with your initial test. Sure, sure. I would agree with that. And of course, we get our test back and there's this adrenal versus pituitary question. How important is it to make that distinction between adrenal versus pituitary? You know, I think it's tough. I have a bit of a biased view because I'm in an academic setting and we have access to radiation therapy and a lot of things. Our surgeons do a lot of adrenalectomies. And so I think if we have the owner that is potentially interested in pursuing a definitive therapy, certainly differentiation is going to be important in those cases. And 
I think most, even though there's a lot of places that probably don't have radiation therapy, there's only a couple that are offering hypophysectomies to address pituitary dependent disease, most surgeons will address adrenal tumors. And so I do think that for those cases, the chance for a cure is, is appealing. And I, I know if I had a dog with Cushing's and I was faced with, okay, a resectable adrenal tumor or lifelong trilostane or lysadrin or whatever, because they have pituitary dependent disease, I'd probably go with the adrenal tumor, even though it's going to be a big chunk of change to get that adrenal tumor removed. It is the chance for a cure. But even if you're dealing with a client that says there's zero chance I'm going to pursue any type of definitive targeted treatment for the, the source of Cushing's, I think it can still be helpful because the, the dogs with adrenal dependent disease generally have shorter survival times when they are treated medically than the dogs with pituitary dependent disease. I also think it can give you some expectations of, of what may happen during your treatment course. Some of the adrenal tumor dogs can be challenging to, to treat. Some of the pituitary dependent dogs may develop some vague signs later on because of the expansion of a pituitary mass. And so I, I think it's still helpful, even if they're not going to alter whether or not they go with medical treatment. But at the end of the day, if they don't want to, and they are committed to going medical treatment, we're still going to treat the dog, but I do think it provides some nice additional information. Sure, sure. And remind me the breakdown that we know of for adrenal versus pituitary. So the, the studies are a little bit variable, but roughly 80 to 85% of cases are pituitary dependent, and the other 15 to 20% are adrenal dependent. And those adrenal ones are a rough mix of adenomas versus adenocarcinomas. And there's probably some pathologist differences in how they would score or grade them. But even the ones that come back histologically as an adenocarcinoma, we've seen many dogs do, do quite well with surgical resection of those if there's no evidence of metastasis or spread at the time of surgery. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like definitely worth an abdominal ultrasound if the owner's up for it. And and I feel like you gave a lot of information. Uh, your answer did kind of surprise me because when you said, you know, if an owner's not going to pursue any targeted therapy, I fully expected you to say, maybe those are the ones where you don't have to do it. But it sounds like there you can still gain a lot of really good information from that abdominal ultrasound, even if you know they're not planning to go for surgery. Yeah, I think so. But but at the end of the day, we still have owners that decline it and, and, sure. and we treat them anyway. So, so right. it doesn't ultimately stop us from treating them. But I do think it's nice to have that additional prognostic information too. I feel like we just need to take like sound bites of this podcast because your way of explaining it, I I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm thinking of myself as a pet owner. I'd be like, oh yeah, okay. I would, that would make sense to me. I would be very, very happy with that answer and, and gain a lot of information from it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so this is a question that I, you know, I think our greater listening audience wants to know, but also I know I have personally because I actually have recently had two Cushing's diagnoses back to back. And there's this question of starting dose because we have our label dose, but then there's some variation from the label dose and once a day, twice a day. What is your recommendation for starting dose of trilostane? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think when, you know, we first started using trilostane, everybody followed those label guidelines, which were, you know, I guess looking back at it, were you know a relatively high dose given once a day. But if you look at some of the kinetic and dynamic studies that are out there, it's probably in many dogs more appropriately dosed twice a day and probably at a lower dose than what those original label guidelines are. And that's not to say that dogs can't still be successfully controlled with once a day dosing. There's many dogs that are, but we often will start with a lower dosage administered twice daily. And 
we typically say somewhere in the, the half mig to one mig per kig ish range twice a day. I mean, some of it's going to be based on available capsule sizes as well. And typically the smaller breed dogs were probably starting closer to a mig per kig twice a day. Some of the large breed dogs may be starting a little bit closer to a half mig per kig twice a day. There's, there is a study several years ago that suggests the, the larger breed dogs might not require quite as much on a mig per kig basis. And that's why I generally go that route for, for those dogs. But again, that, that, that lower dose twice a day range is usually where we're starting. And that's interesting that you say the small dog versus large dog. I would say, I feel like that's been my clinical experience. This might be putting you on the spot a little bit, so feel free to defer. But does the degree of change in the lab work or the degree of clinical signs change your starting dose? It usually doesn't for me, but realistically, again, it goes back to, I think I have time to get control on these dogs. And so I, I feel better starting in that conservative range and, and working my way up as needed rather than starting higher and potentially overshooting. Sure, sure. That makes sense. And one of the concerns reading all of the new information and trying to figure out what the best dose was, like you said, taking into consideration capsule size and how we should make these changes was what if I pick too high of a dose? Is there, how concerned do I need to be that, of course, I'm now making this like my, my question about my cases, but hopefully to benefit everybody. How real is the concern that that starting dose would be too high and could create an Addisonian crisis? So I think if you're starting at that lower dosage twice a day, it is exceedingly unlikely that that's going to overtreat them. We, we absolutely have seen dogs that are overtreated, and, and we ultimately overtreat some of our dogs over time as we're working our dosage higher and higher to, to get better control. But I think if you're using that lower starting dosage, it's unlikely. Most of the dogs that we have seen that have presented almost in an Addisonian-like crisis because of trilostane treatment, usually those are the dogs that are on much higher dosages given once a day. That's been our experience. I can't say that that's everybody else's experience, but that's generally what we've seen in those cases. And so I think if you're if you're starting lower twice a day, gradually working your way up, it's not going to be a, a common occurrence, but it will occur. And if you treat enough, it's going to happen in some cases. And I always think it's interesting as, as some of these dogs will rebound in several days. Others, it takes months for them to fully recover their function. And there's not always a, you know, a great way to predict it. But I think that most of them do recover. The, the ones in our experience that have not recovered and have become permanently Addisonian are the ones that actually have electrolyte derangements when they come in. So their sodium's low, their potassium's high, they look biochemically like an Addisonian. Those are the ones that we have seen that have tended to be permanent. Most of the ones that come in just showing signs of cortisol deficiency, they, they generally will rebound and you're going to at some point be reinitiating your therapy for Cushing's again in those dogs. And so the ones you're talking about being permanently affected, I'm thinking of mechanism of action of trilostane being an enzyme inhibitor. Are those generally where there's been some physical damage to the adrenal gland? So they, they have looked at some of those cases in a few studies, and there is evidence of adrenal necrosis occurring. And the exact reasons are still somewhat debated. Some There's some speculation that maybe it's really high ACTH levels. So, you know, so if you've overtreated the dogs, their ACTH levels are really high. But there's, there's some questions with that as well. And so I, I don't think anybody really knows for sure. I mean, I think the good thing is that it's really rare. I, I think that we've probably seen three cases at our institution over the last 12 years. So again, it's an uncommon thing with, with trilostane treatment, but it, it is a possibility. 
Interesting. Interesting. And of course, a question that many of us come across when we're implementing treatment or continuing treatment on the one hand, uh, from a capsule size perspective, but on the other hand, from a cost perspective is compounded medication. So what's your take on compounded versus veteral to manage this disease? Yeah, so we, we do see dogs that are treated with compounded trilistane. And our, our general preference is that we use the, you know, the name brand Veteral. We treat them with the available capsule sizes that are out there. I think it was a bigger problem before they had the five milligram capsule. Now that they have the, the five milligram capsule, we can often, you know, target our, our smaller patients a little bit better. But there were some studies, a group at Texas A&M looked at how accurate compounding was for trilostane, and they found a fair amount of variability with it. But, but I think even more importantly, when they were getting compounded trilostane using the, the, the bulk chemical product, the absorption characteristics were affected in some of those. And so we generally would recommend staying away from that. However, if a dog is being treated with compounded trilostane and is doing great, we're probably not going to rock the boat and change anything. But from a starting standpoint, we're usually not going that route. Now, there are some people that question, well, can you compound from the actual veteral product? And one of our old pharmacists used to do that. And if it's done correctly and accurately, probably acceptable to do. But at that point, you're probably really not saving anything from the cost standpoint because you're still using the, you know, the trade name product for that. But, but using that would probably be acceptable, especially if you have a, you know, a trusted pharmacist doing the compounding. Interesting. Interesting. And you mentioned the five milligram capsule. I did not realize that that was a newer addition. And that makes sense because I did notice when I was putting one of my, one of these two patients that I recently diagnosed with Cushing's on trilostane, I went, huh, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. I used to struggle a lot more to do this. I'm not sure what was going on. And it's probably because she, she was a small patient and that five milligram was available. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I guess at this point, everything is newer. It probably isn't that new, but yeah, in the last, last few years, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. But definitely sure. makes it easier to dose those smaller dogs now. Absolutely. Another question I have is about monitoring. There have been a lot of changes with monitoring recommendations. So what, what are your recommendations when it comes to rechecking these guys? Yeah, based on the, you know, the, the, the label guidelines that, you know, it is recommended to do an ACTH stimulation test similar to, to Lysidrin monitoring. But in, in recent years, there have been a few studies that have shown that the results of the ACTH stimulation test aren't great correlates with the clinical picture. And so there are some groups that have suggested using either a pre-pill cortisol concentration, maybe using a baseline cortisol, or there's others that still use the ACTH stimulation test. And so I think there's all different ways that people approach this. I don't know what the right answer is. And I, I think anybody that says that they do probably isn't considering all of the, you know, the different perspectives that are out there. What we have done in some of our cases is we will still do an initial ACTH stimulation test or two as we're getting them controlled. And then we'll often switch to a pre-pill cortisol to, to monitor these dogs. I do think that similar to diabetes, I guess, it, it's, you know, the clinical picture has to be a big, big driver. And so I think the, the cortisol monitoring that, that we're doing, it's looking for extremes. Are, are we really undertreating these dogs? Are the cortisol values quite high? And if they're really high, even independent of what the owner is saying, I'm thinking we probably need more, or are they really, really concerningly low, in which case I'm probably going to back off the, the drug a little bit in those cases. So I think with the cortisol monitoring, at least the way I've approached it now is it's not even so, to me, so important which monitoring method you're using, but again, it's using it as a guide in conjunction with the clinical picture. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And yes, I would agree with you. Anybody 
I feel like who has any definitive answers on Cushing's of this is the way it is, is probably not not taking the whole picture into account because I feel like it's a very fluid disease. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and there are. There's a lot of strong opinions out there. And I've, I've just sort of tried to balance them all in my approach to it. Sure, sure. What are the endpoints that you look at for these patients? What do you feel like constitutes a successfully managed and controlled Cushnoid patient? Well, part of it is a happy owner. And they're the ones that are living with these dogs that are polyuric, polydipsy, polydipsic, polyphagic. They're they're panting. They they you know, physically look abnormal. They're pot-bellied. They have alopecia. And, and so I want to see resolution of those signs or at least dramatic improvement in them. And, and that's really my, my goal. And at the same time, I want whatever form of cortisol monitoring I'm doing to suggest that I'm not massively over or under treating these dogs. And, and, I, and I do follow general breakpoints and guidelines when I'm looking at those results. But again, the resolution of clinical signs or, or at least substantial improvement is going to be the big, the big end game for these dogs. I am always so interested when I talk to internists about Cushing's disease because you guys are just so insightful and clearly have seen just the gamut of these cases and all the different things that can happen. And so each each viewpoint is unique, and I feel like I take so much away from every one of these conversations. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and going over all of this with me. Oh, yeah, no problem. Glad you found it helpful. And uh, hopefully my perspective isn't, you know, drastically different than another internist, but I'm glad it was informative. (laughs) No, no, it's not at all. It's not at all. I feel like a lot of things are in line and a lot of things fall along what we were talking about, that there's a lot of variation patient to patient, owner to owner, and, you know, in each individual case. So really treating each Cushing's patient as an individual. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, wonderful. Any final thoughts you want to share with everybody? I don't think so. Um, I, it's a, a challenging and frustrating disease, but also I think you know quite rewarding when you have those that, that respond really well. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Take care. All right. I hope everybody is feeling good about their approach to Cushing's disease. Thank you, Dr. Langlois, for bestowing confidence on all of us. Thank you to Decra for making this episode possible. And of course, thanks to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.